0: Charles has very recently plonked his royal ass down onto the throne over in the UK. Um, And look, whatever you think of this new Charles, uh, I've landed on not a whole lot for the time being. Uh, I think it is safe to say that he will not do quite as badly as his predecessor, Charles I. Charles I was such a bad king that he ended up joining an exclusive club with quite a short list of members. Um, and when I say short, I mean short insofar as that's what he became when his head was removed from his body. It's exclusive in the sense that his head was excluded from remaining attached to the rest of him. Uh, Charles I was one of the few monarchs in history to have had his head chopped off by his own subjects. And so whatever your expectations are for the large-eared fan of homeopathy who can't move his own inkwells, you would hope that Charles 3rd doesn't end up being such a bad king that he ends up getting publicly executed like Charles I did. Anyway, the reason for this is that Charles I spent most of his career as King doing everything he could to piss off the members of the English Parliament. And this proved to be a bad move, ultimately, vis-a-vis the whole head-chopping situation. But there is a lot more to get across before that. Parliament got to decide on things like taxation, and and so Charles Created more, more than a few problems for himself when he kept dismissing Parliament and had to find all sorts of new ways to make money to, to run his kingdom. And on top of this, this was during a period of, of intense religious conflict throughout not just, not just England, but throughout all of Western Europe as, as Protestants and Catholics batted each other silly. So, Charles definitely needed all the money that he could get, and putting himself consistently offside with Parliament did not, uh, well, to put it mildly, it didn't help him achieve the goal of having overflowing coffers at any point. He found some very inventive ways to try to keep his kingdom financially afloat without Parliament, I have to say, but eventually he was, refor- he was forced to recall Parliament, which went about as well as you'd think, given that it was the equivalent equivalent of a late-night you up to an X. Um, and before long, after having recalled Parliament, Charles was fighting the English Civil War and, well, you know, I mean, you kind of already know how that goes, right? I've, I've already spoiled the ending of that one there by talking about the whole, you know, execution business. Anyway, let's get to it. we we'll begin the story of Charles I. We'll talk about his entire career, what ended up with him lowering his head onto a chopping block uh, and having, having, again, his own subjects execute him, shed some light on... Uh, just what the current British monarch is up against when it comes to his ancestral namesake. Here we go. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back back to the year 1600 to Dunfermline in Scotland, which is just north of Edinburgh, just on the other side of the Firth Forth. And it was there that Charles was born as the second son of King James VI of Scotland, who long-term listeners will remember from episode 19, get across it became King James I of England, as well as being King James Sixth of Scotland after the death of Queen Elizabeth I in 1603. Now, Charles was a weak and a fragile child, was sickly, and he was generally overlooked because his older brother, whose name was Henry Frederick, was strong and tall and athletic and handsome and all the stuff that you'd want your heir to be. Charles, on the other hand, was, as I say, frail and, and weak and he had a stutter and this stutter actually stuck with him into, into his adult life. Personally speaking, he was quiet and reserved and, and generally kept himself to himself. He, he wasn't as outgoing and brash as his older brother, who he idolised, by the way, he absolutely idolised. Um, Henry Frederick was the heir to James and his kingdoms and, and Charles did everything he could to, to emulate his older brother, just as you know, younger brothers love to do. He tried to learn to ride. He took up archery and fencing and, and, you know, broadly just did everything that he could to overcome being a scrawny little nerd. But then in 1612, Henry Frederick died. I mean, Very sad. But Charles now became the heir apparent, right? Charles was set to in, in, inherit not just Scotland, but also England from his old man once James died. And these kingdoms, both England and Scotland, were were torn by religious strife between Catholics and Protestants. And, and James the First and Sixth was doing everything he could, really, to try to bring about peace between the, these these warring flavors of Christianity. He he spent years trying to arrange a marriage between his heir Charles and a woman named Maria Anna, who was the daughter of the King of Spain, Philip the Third, obviously an ardent Catholic, uh, in order to bring about some unity between protestants and catholics his son a a, a protestant maria anna a catholic um and in a way i have to say it did actually bring about some unity between protestants protestants and catholics because they were unified in their total hatred of this idea the english parliament railed against king james who sent uh, the duke of buckingham one of his lieutenants uh, to negotiate with the spanish buckingham failed miserably and the anti-catholic sentiment in england grew even stronger it grew to fever pitch everyone from parliamentarians to peasants were demanding a war with the spanish at this point um but this was a war that england couldn't really afford and james you know even with these negotiations failing miserably was actually being very clever by keeping them going even if they weren't going to go anywhere right because listen to this As long as the negotiations between England and Spain were open, as long as there was at least, you know, a shadow of a chance that these two might get married, Spain couldn't go to war with England. So it was a very, very clever way to actually maintain peace between these two nations, even if it was just a pretense, these marriage negotiations, they made sure that Spain wasn't going to hand England its ass on a silver platter. And besides, I mean, it's all upside if they actually managed to strike a deal. Maria Anna's dowry would be absolutely massive, and so now there's no war, and England would be cashed up, and you would hope Protestants and Catholics would finally put aside their different... Well, no, let's be realistic. Obviously, that wasn't ever going to happen. Anyway, the Spanish match, as it became known, it didn't come about, but it did cause a lot of tension between King and Parliament. And this is the reason I'm talking about it, because it was actually a a crucial uh, bit of uh, foreshadowing, I guess, it, it set the stage very nicely for Charles I to take the throne. Because by 1624, I mean, Charles in his 20s, James the Sixth and First not in good shape. He, he wasn't even 60 years old, uh, but his health was failing. He seemed to be on the way out. And Charles, and also Buckingham, I might mention as well, uh, he was something of a favourite of the young prince. Charles and Buckingham essentially took control of the kingdom in that year in 1624 when James the 6th and 1st was uh, was you know ailing and uh, look it wasn't an official regency or anything but for all intents and purposes they were the ones in charge because James just wasn't up to it and when he died when James died in 1625 Charles ascended to the throne, and it really didn't change much in practical terms because he went from ruling in practice to also ruling in principle as well, as did, I might add, the Duke of Buckingham, who remained the new king's favourite and was deeply involved in all of Charles' uh, Charles' affairs. Uh, Anyway, Spain had been a bust, right? Forget that. So Charles instead focused his attention on finding a different Catholic bride from a different part of Europe, and specifically in France. And this search, it bore a lot more fruit. Because Charles married a French princess whose name was Henrietta Maria, and he delayed opening his first parliament as king until he had consummated this marriage with this Catholic. Now, why, you might might ask? Because that would make it a fait accompli. There were no takesies, backsies. It's done. The Protestant king has married a Catholic. Stick it up your bum, Parliament. You can't do anything about it. Despite the fact that Parliament was absolutely so rock-solid, ironclad against uh, the, their king marrying a, uh, a, a Catholic, Charles took the decision out of their hands by just doing it before he recalled Parliament, and that was that. Now, Charles is infamous for his terrible relationship with Parliament, and he hasn't even been king for six months before he's pissing them off like he wouldn't believe. He's following in his father's footsteps he's not listening to or respecting Parliament. And I tell you what, you can probably guess how it's going to go from here on out. I mean, look, you know, say it with me. It only got worse from there, beginning with him also assuring Parliament as part of this, uh, this the, the whole marriage proceedings with his, with his new French bride, Uh, He assured Parliament that his marriage to a Catholic wouldn't affect the position of Anglicanism as the official state religion, before making a secret agreement with his new brother-in-law, King Louis XIII of France, which not only moved to protect English Catholics, but also lent the French some English warships to help them persecute French Protestants. So he's off to a flyer, is Charles, and the deeply Protestant Parliament is not at all impressed with him. And how did they express this? In the only way that they really effectively could, by trying to restrict the Crown's access to tax money. In 1626, Parliament restricted Charles' rights to collect what's known as tonnage and poundage, so customs taxes, basically. But Charles had some tricks of his own, and he found an absolutely ingenious way to sidestep the restrictions that Parliament was attempting to place on him. Now, because you're not going to believe this. Have a listen, because... You really won't believe how clever his solution was, right? In order to- Parliament's come in, they said, you can't collect the, the tonnage and poundage anymore, these custom ta- taxes, they're off the table for you, Charles. You're not going to be able to, uh, to to collect this money anymore. And the way that he got around this was just by straight up ignoring it. I mean, genius, unbridled genius with the Royal Uno reverse card from Charles. Oh, you can't collect these taxes anymore? Yes, I can, his answer. Ultimately, a very effective way to undermine the authority of Parliament, just straight up ignoring what they were trying to get him to do. Um, And the problems continued. I mean, while this is going on, Parliament still wanted a war against the Catholics. and, And so the House of Commons voted to fund some naval attacks on the Spanish, now that the French were out of bounds because, you know, Charles just got married. And who did Charles send to lead these attacks on the Spanish, as Parliament had prescribed? He sent his good mate Buckingham, of course, who had proven just how useful he was when dealing with the Spanish when he completely failed in the Spanish match negotiations. And he did just about as well this time, too, as he monumentally buggered up an attack on the Spanish port of Cadiz. So Parliament tried to impeach him. And Charles's response? Well... From the reverse to the draw, two, or more specifically, arrest two. He arrested two parliamentarians who were outspoken critics, uh, outspoken critics of Buckingham, and, and were the ones trying to impeach the bloke. And Parliament escalated things further by demanding not just the release of these two parliamentarians, but also the straight-up dismissal of Buckingham from from Charles's court. And once again, Charles showed his indefatigable problem-solving abilities, his marvelously deft and cunning approach to getting what he wanted. Rather than dismiss Buckingham, he dismissed the entire Parliament. He reached into the toiletry bag, he pulled out Occam's razor and put it to very good use in finding the simplest and most straightforward solution to his problem. But then a new problem arose for him to deal with. I mean, he didn't have to deal with those bastard Puritans from Parliament anymore. and that's, I mean, that's great. He's, he's very happy that, that that problem has sort of solved itself. But it turns out that he also wasn't too keen on just how much of a Catholic his wife ended up being after all. And so after Buckingham's disastrous attack on the Spanish in 1625, Charles decided to bring the Catholics of Europe down a peg or two by sending Buckingham off to oversee another disastrous attack, this time on the French in 1625. And you might think, well, hang on one second, at least this would have pleased those warmongering English Protestants who were baying for blood before they were before the parliament was dismissed, right? No, 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 not at all. I mean, let's remember, it is King Charles I we're talking about here. He made sure he found a way to piss both sides off while doing this because in an effort to fund this war against, or these attacks, I should say, against the French in order to, I don't know, teach his Catholic wife a lesson or something, he also announced an exciting new tax that everyone had to pay to fund these attacks on the French. And a tax tax, I suppose you could. could, No, yeah, that one needed more time in the oven. Anyway, this one, much like that gag, went down like a fart in an elevator. And once again, everyone from parliamentarians to peasants are spewing at the shameless behaviour of their king. When parliament met again in 1628, I mean, they're frothing at the mouth at having having had to pay a tax that they themselves didn't authorise to fund a war that ended up being an absolute disaster because, you know, old mate Buckingham was put in charge. When Parliament met again, they attempted to assert their right to legislate on taxation, their exclusive right, and that the King couldn't collect taxes without their permission. And you won't believe what Charles did in response. You'll never be able to guess. Oh, wait. What? Oh, okay, yes, you you guess that he dismissed parliament and collected the taxes himself anyway well okay yes it turns out that after all you could guess what he did you're absolutely correct hey look it had worked previously right he put those upstart bastards in the house of commons in their place he collected the taxes that were rightfully his and he jolly well got on with the business of ruling his realm as a tyrant should and it meant that public opinion hit look not rock bottom Not just yet. I mean, his head is still attached to his shoulders at this point, so not quite rock bottom, but it is safe to say he is not a popular king after this. He and Buckingham are absolutely hated. The English people haven't been this disillusioned with their king since Richard III kidnapped and murdered his nephews in the Tower of London, which was also done, funnily enough, with the aid of the then Duke of Buckingham too. And uh, while Charles would eventually pay the ultimate price for the, you know, for for his blatant disregard of the people over whom he ruled, it was actually someone else who paid this price a little earlier than he might have expected, because it was the Duke of Buckingham who was assassinated in August 1628. So hated was he that he was killed, and Charles was beside himself with grief. Apparently, he locked himself in his rooms for two days and refused to come out while the public outside, I mean, they partied like it was 1599. Buckingham's dead. Great job, everyone. Firm handshakes all round. But the death of Buckingham, it, it, it did a couple of things. It ended the English attacks overseas because, I mean, who else was inept enough to make sure that it all ends so disastrously? And funnily enough, this improved things between Charles and his wife, Henrietta Maria. They reconciled. She got pregnant. And everything kind of hummed along smoothly for a while there. Until 1629, when those bloody bastard parliamentarians insisted on, you know, doing their jobs when Parliament reconvened. Parliament didn't waste any time in condemning the king over taxation and religion and anything else they could think of. And Charles was furious. Who are these filthy, jumped-up commoners attempting to tell him how to rule his realm? I don't think so, mate. No, he arrested nine of the parliamentary leaders before resorting to a time-honoured personal tradition of just dissolving the Parliament altogether. And this time, it was one too many bootstomps for the cockroach-like English Parliament to suffer, and it stayed dissolved. And for the next 11 years, Charles ruled as an absolute monarch, a firm believer in the divine right of kings, answerable to no one but his God. The only problem was... He very quickly ran out of money because he couldn't raise any taxes. So he had to use every trick in the book to try to keep his coffers full through taxation that was applied without the approval of Parliament. England was in a lot of debt that it couldn't afford to service, and so he made peace with Catholic France and Spain. War is very expensive. And he looked for other ways to collect taxes without Parliament. He combed through ancient laws and he found a couple that, I mean, they got him out of out of this tight spot. He found one that said that the king could fine wealthy landowners who didn't it, it didn't attend his coronation. Uh, brilliant, he goes, I mean, I didn't invite any of them, but, I mean, they didn't turn up, and there's this law that said they had to, so he, you know, hands out a round of fines like a parking attendant with an end-of-year quota. And he found another old law, this old feudal law, that said that coastal areas had to maintain a local navy in order to defend England from seaboard, in, seaboard invaders, or if they didn't pay the king so-called ship money so he could provide the ships instead and this was a tax that didn't need parliamentary approval and it did two things when charles instituted it firstly it made him a bucket load of money and secondly it made the people who paid it extremely angry as it was supposed to be a wartime tax only charles didn't care about that he only cared about making sure his kingdom's finances were, were kept in shape which even after, even I mean, even with all the ship money, they weren't really. Um, Charles was in such a bad spot financially that no one would give him a loan, not even the English-controlled East India Company. But Charles, once again, he managed to use his significant problem-solving genius in order to uh, to overcome this obstacle. I mean, you know... Even if we can't be too complimentary of the bloke's methods, at least he was consistent because he simply seized a bunch of spices from the East India Company, sold them well below market value for some quick cash, and promised to pay the EIC back with interest later. He pulled the same trick with the Royal Mint. He seized a bunch of silver bullion, sold it without the permission of the mint itself, and... I have to be honest, I wasn't able to find out if he ever did pay all these people back. I will leave that as an exercise to the listener. But based on the way that the bloke tended to, you know, approach the needs and the wants of the people he perceived to be beneath him, I don't know how good their chances were. Anyway, he also looked north to raise some money to his other kingdom of Scotland. He's still the king of Scotland. And there he raised some cash by retracting all the gifts of land that had been given out to various people over the last hundred years or so. And this was, as you might have guessed, not a very popular move at all as, you know, all the I mean, there there were people who had been given this land and had been living on it for a 100 years. And now the king has come and gone, sorry, mate, I will need that one back. Um, And this, plus his insistence on Anglican religious customs in conflict with Scottish Presbyterianism, made him extremely unpopular in the land of his birth, and it led to a conflict known as the Bishop's Wars where Scottish Presbyterians fought a short but actually quite decisive war against English Anglicans, and the Scots won as well. They, they, they absolutely thrashed the English in 1640, and they enforced their religious demands on Charles, who was forced to capitulate because he simply couldn't afford to keep fighting this war. War is expensive. We've established that beforehand. And after the, after the disastrous loss of the Bishop's War, Charles had no choice but to recall Parliament. In order to start collecting more taxes, he had tried to use every trick in the book, but after 11 years, finally his luck ran out. And so he recalled Parliament in April and then changed his mind and dissolved it in May. This was the so called short Parliament. He decided, actually, you know what, I don't want to have to go back there. And then he realised that he was absolutely buggered without more money and so re recalled Parliament in November. And this was the famous long Parliament in contrast to the previous short Parliament. And the long Parliament. It knew it had Charles over a barrel. The parliamentarians, they fully realised that Charles was effectively bankrupt and was facing now widespread discontent and in some places rebellion. In 1641, there was a widespread rebellion uprising in Ireland. And because parliament knew that at this point they were indispensable to Charles and the continued health and, largely speaking, existence of the realm they knew they could take rather a few more liberties with the King this time around. They rounded up many of his senior advisors, charged them with high treason. They forced Charles to agree to a law that said that Parliament had to be called at least once every three years. And Charles was also forbidden from dissolving Parliament without the express permission of Parliament itself. So in in these ways, Parliament firmed up its position against the Crown, knowing again, as I say, that Charles was over a barrel. And after this, moved to condemn him further, not just for the transgressions of the last 11 years, but all the way back to the beginning of his, re- of his reign. They knew how weak his position had become. They knew that Charles couldn't really do anything about it. And so in November 1641, the House of Commons passed what, what has become known as the Grand Remonstrance. This was essentially a list of grievances against the king and his ministers, as I say, going all the way back to the start of his reign. And... I mean, while it was probably great for the parliamentarians to get this off their chest, it certainly didn't help do anything to solve the tension between the Crown and the Parliament. And things were really just going from bad to worse for the nation as the tension between King and Parliament worsened. The Parliament passed an ordinance that sought to seize control of the English army. Charles responded by attempting to arrest five leading members of the House of Commons for high treason. He marched into the parliamentary chambers with armed guards, which, I mean, is not the sort of thing that is conducive to a long and lasting peace between two powerful political institutions. And then as we move into 1642, whatever remaining political stability that there was in England just completely fell apart. The the people of England, they essentially at this stage had to pick a side. Would they support the king or the Parliament because conflict, full-blown war between the Parliamentarians and the Royalists seemed inevitable. Many wealthy nobles and aristocrats fell behind the King, they brought with them their money and their men, so Charles wasn't without any allies. But amongst the common folk in London, in the south and in particular, most supported Parliament. And so Charles realised that he needed to make himself scarce. He sent his family overseas and he himself fled north to gather his supporters there. And the entire country began to arm itself for war, both supporters of the King and supporters of Parliament, or, as they became known to history, the Cavaliers and the Roundheads. Both these terms started off by being derogatory. Eventually, they were adopted by the respective sides all the same. Uh, The Cavaliers were famous for their sumptuous clothing, their long hair, their plumed hats, their general excess of the upper class. Uh, While the Roundheads were the Puritanical members of Parliament with plain and simple clothes and close-cropped hair, hence the, the short hair, Roundheads. Anyway, Cavaliers and Roundheads prepared for war in August 1642. It finally came to them the English Civil War began. Charles controlled the north and the west and the southwest of England. He set up his court as far south as Oxford, while the Roundheads, they remained based in London. They controlled, as I say, the southeast. Importantly, however, the English Navy ended up falling in behind the parliamentarians, and this was crucial because it blocked any support that Charles might have received from continental Europe. And when the fighting actually got underway, it was, you might be surprised to learn, largely inconclusive. No side was able to make meaningful gains against the other. And initially, at least, there seemed like there might be a chance that the war might just kind of peter out. There were peace talks held in in 1643. But unfortunately, these peace talks came to nothing. They fell apart and the conflicts continued. The Cavaliers managed to capture some cities off the Roundheads, but the Roundheads rallied after this. They broke a Cavalier siege at Gloucester, and the stalemate continued. In 1644, Charles summoned a new parliament to Oxford, the aptly named Oxford Parliament, uh, but it was completely toothless, of course, and it really didn't help him much at all. Uh, and meanwhile, the Roundheads were strengthening their position by organising their forces into the, uh, the new model army, a disciplined Parliamentary-controlled standing army with a professional and dedicated officer corps, and this really did change the uh, the texture of the war. Now that the parliamentarians, the Roundhead Roundheads, had a a, a, a quite a formidable fighting force to go up against the Cavaliers with, Uh, although more indecisive campaigning followed on both sides. There were a lot of stalemates, a lot of inconclusive battles during the English Civil War, despite hundreds and thousands of thousands of people dying throughout it. But finally, at the Battle of Naseby in June 1645, the war took a more decisive turn when the Cavaliers suffered a devastating defeat. More roundhead victories followed after this, and Charles was chased all the way back to Oxford. And then the Roundheads—they laid siege. They laid siege to the city, and Charles was forced to undertake a risky escape attempt to uh, to avoid falling into the hands of the parliamentarians. He disguised as a ser- he was disguised as a servant, and fled the city of Oxford uh, for the north. He uh, fled towards his native Scotland. He ran into an army of invading Scottish Presbyterians. And while, I mean, some historians characterize what happened next as him surrendering himself to them, largely speaking, from his perspective, he was attempting to realign various interests in the war and thought that his best chance of coming up against the Roundheads and their new model army was by bringing the Scots on side. It didn't work. Uh, The Presbyterians, after uh, Charles had, had surrendered himself or given himself over to them, took him prisoner. Uh, Held him in Newcastle in 1647 and went on and negotiated a deal with the roundheads to hand over the king. Uh, Sorry, Charles, mate. I mean, everyone has their price. And Charles, apparently to the parliamentarians, was worth £100,000. So he was duly handed over to the roundheads by those perfidious Scots. But internal strife amongst the parliamentarians actually worked in Charles' favour. They couldn't decide what they wanted to do with their prisoner, and so he was able to escape once again, while negotiations over what his ultimate fate would be continued amongst the parliamentarians Charles picked his moment, escaped, and fled to the Isle of Wight. He wanted to flee to the continent, and he thought that the governor of the Isle of Wight might be sympathetic to his cause, and he couldn't have been more wrong, because once he arrived in the Isle of Wight, he was locked up, and the governor told Parliament. Still, Charles didn't give up. He secretly negotiated an alliance with the Scottish Presbyterians, after all. I mean, they'd been so willing to sell him out for their £100,000 earlier that year, and now apparently they were going to turn their coats again. And uh, an agreement was struck. The Scots agreed to invade England on behalf of Charles and fight for the Royalist cause in exchange for the official establishment of Presbyterianism in England. However, this renewed cavalier campaign with Scottish backing was no match, ultimately, for the new model army. And the Royalists faltered. They failed. And by 1648, the second round of the English Civil War was over and it was a resounding victory for the roundheads who saw an opportunity to cement themselves into a position of power led by oliver cromwell who of course would go on to become the lord protector of the english commonwealth the parliamentarians purged themselves of anyone with even vague royalist sympathies and formed what was known as the rump parliament the people who were left behind They took Charles as a prisoner to Windsor Castle. He had lost the war, and I tell you what, he was about to lose more than that because the parliamentarians were determined to end this problem once and for all. Charles I was charged with high treason by the Rump House of Commons, and they established a high court of justice in order to do something that they'd never done before, put a king on trial. And the idea of doing this, of putting a king on trial, it was unthinkable for so many people. And even some staunch roundheads in the rump parliament, the ones who had no royalist sympathies whatsoever, even they thought it was going too far. But there were enough who supported the idea in order to see it through. And so after Charles was charged with treason, he had to face the High Court of Justice. He was accused of putting the interests of himself and his close followers above the interests of the nation. He was accused of becoming an enemy of the people when he waged war against Parliament. And further, he was held personally responsible by Parliament for all the devastation and loss of life caused by the English Civil War. The death toll was as high as 300,000 people, not to mention the destroyed towns and besieged cities, the burnt crops and ruined lives. All of this was laid at the feet of of Charles the First. And you might be interested to know how he responded. I mean, we've seen him take a very characteristic and consistent approach to dealing with problems like this. I'm happy to say he took exactly the same one with the High Court of Justice. Remember when Parliament used to do things he didn't like? His number one strategy was just to ignore whatever they said? Well, he tried that out here, believe it or not. When he was asked to enter a plea after the charges had been read out, he responded by asking I would know by what power I am called hither, by what lawful authority. He insisted that the court had no jurisdiction over him as a king and that the trial was an illegal farce. Well, Charles, mate, even if that's so, they were the one holding the headsman's axe, weren't they? The trial continued despite his objections, and on the 26th of January, after six days, Charles was found guilty and sentenced to death for high treason. Fifty-nine commissioners of the court signed his death warrant, writing their names into history, as they did so as regicides. Charles' date of execution was set for the 30th of January, and that morning he made a very interesting request of the people who were about to chop his head off. He asked for two shirts to wear as he was taken out to the scaffold. And the reason for this is that it's late January, it is freezing cold in England, and he doesn't want the public who have assembled to watch him be executed. He doesn't want them to think that he's afraid if he's shivering in the cold. He didn't want them to mistake that for shivers of fear. He was led by armed guards from where he'd been held at St. James's Palace to the Palace of Whitehall, and there he was led up a scaffold where the executioner awaited. And his last words didn't carry to the crowd that had assembled to watch. They only got as far as the guards that stood near the scaffold itself. He said, I shall go from a corruptible to an incorruptible crown, where no disturbance can be. And at two o'clock, he lowered his head onto the chopping block, he gave a signal to the executioner, and the executioner brought down the axe in one clean, swift stroke that cleaved Charles's head from his body. And traditionally in a situation like this, the executioner would have held up the disembodied head and shouted, behold the head of a traitor. And the executioner didn't do this. He did hold up the head, but he didn't shout anything out. And it is thought that the reason the executioner didn't do this is because he didn't want his voice to be recognised. He didn't want people to know who it was that had cleaved the head off of their king. And to this day, we don't know who cut... Charles's head off. Although we can safely guess that it was very probably an experienced headsman, seeing as he was able to chop the head off in one go, which is a harder thing to do than you'd think, apparently. I'm not speaking from personal experience, but that's what my researchers tell me. Anyway, that was that. King Charles I of England was no more. And to this day, he remains the only English or British monarch to have been executed. To avoid his son, who was also named Charles, from inheriting the throne, Parliament forbade the proclamation of a new monarch, and then, on the 7th of February, abolished the monarchy altogether. Now, this led to the continuation of the English Civil War, the replacement of the monarchy with the Commonwealth of England, led by Cromwell, and then ultimately the Stuart Restoration that saw Charles's son, also named Charles, become king as Charles II. But that is another story. Charles I was not a good king. In fact, he was a terrible king, one of the worst in English and British history, certainly right up there with Edward II, who was so bad that we still tell lies about him dying by having a a red-hot poker stuck up his bum. Charles spent his entire reign pissing off Parliament, the institution that enabled him to rule, and ultimately the chickens came home to roost. And roost they did on the stump of his neck left behind after the beheading. Charles believed in the divine right of kings, that absolute monarchy was his destiny as a leader, and that he was answerable to no one but his God. And instead, he met his end with the blade of an axe. Nasty way to go. So that's the bar. Charles III, old mate, the world is a very different place to what it was for your ancestor, and I think that even the most generous bookie wouldn't give anyone great odds on your reign ending by you having your head lopped off. But maybe, all the same, there's a lesson or two to be learnt from the reign of Charles I about acknowledging the prevailing political winds, respecting the right of people to have responsible self-governance, and generally, not being so far up your own ass that you can see out your own belly button. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of King Charles I of England. And as I say, I don't think the story eventually of King Charles Third of England will end in quite the same way. But there are maybe one or two things we can learn from this tale all the same. Anyway, that is that for another episode of half Our History. And I do hope you've enjoyed it. A very exciting piece of news to share with everyone. There is new merch in the merch shop. There is new merch that has just been put in there just this week. And uh, look, I don't want to brag too much, but it is really, really good. And actually, you know what? I shouldn't brag too much because I actually didn't fully make it myself. Uh, What I've done is I've taken... I say taken, I've ripped off uh, famous album covers and edited them in Photoshop to uh, instead have sort of a historical twist, right? So, for instance, um, the very famous Joy Division album, Unknown Pleasures, with the the sound waves that kind of look like mountains, right? Well, they look like mountains, so I... Edited a bunch of elephants in there, and now it's Hannibal crossing the Alps, or the um, uh, the Sex Pistols album. Never mind the bollocks. Here's the uh, here's the Sex Pistols. Now it's never mind the Mongols. Here's the Black Death. Very proud of that one. There's the notorious Socrates, ready to die. There's uh, there's Dark Side of the Moon with um, Isaac Newton. There's all sorts of stuff there. I do recommend you go and have a look at it. History.net. You'll find the link to the merch up there. It is very important that you follow the link from the website because that's the only way I get paid. So make sure you do that. There's a referral code there that you do need to follow if you want to see if, if I want to have that money bouncing around in my coffers. Uh, so head over to the merch shop have a look at it there's some other new designs there as well there's Taylor Swift there's Paul Simon there's Tupac as well um so go and have a look at that if if it takes your fancy and uh, grab a couple of things uh, there and and I'm also I'm happy to say in discussion with uh with an artist that uh, I'm hoping we're going to be able to bring out some new merch again I said I said by the end of the year and all of a sudden it was just like now but uh, there'll be more more merch hopefully Uh, By the end of the year, depending on how that one goes, uh, I'll see what I can line up for people. But very exciting. Uh, if anyone wants to get their hands on that you can do it right now uh, and if you're a patreon member you won't be paying full price for that uh, for that merch either I, I recommend if anyone wants to get a sweet discount on any of that merch head to patreon.com slash half history the moment you sign up you do get the merch uh code so you want to sign up grab yourself some merch and then continue to support the show uh and it's not just a discount on merch that you get there as well you also get all, all sorts of other stuff early access to uh to episodes bonus content behind the scenes stuff uh, all sorts of things there so, Patreon.com, great way to support the show, uh, but as is, you know, going and buying merch, although the margin on that one, not quite as lucrative as uh, Patreon there. So, I'll leave it up to you to decide what you want to do. Anyway, that's enough boring housekeeping stuff for now. Uh, thanks to all the people that are the, spreading the word for the show. Get in touch if you want to, of course. Tell your enemies, tell your friends, tell people about who, whom you feel largely ambivalent, as I say every week. And I'll see you back here for more Half House History. Until then, leaving you the question, of course, posed on Reddit. This one, I mean, we talked about how Charles fled... To the Isle of Wight at one point uh, before he was taken into custody by the uh, by the parliamentarians, and Reddit historian Abu Ben Adam has a good question that relates to that, asking how did the English conquer the undead inhabitants of the Isle of Wight?